I just got a text from my other daughter. Comes up on my iPad, says, Happy birthday, Daddy. Have an amazing day. I know I'm interrupting service right now, LOL. I love you so much, but I just wanted to let you know. <laughs> Let's see. I'll, I'll wait and text her later. Okay. So if you see me distracted, sometimes I get texts on this thing. It's not supposed to happen, but... Okay, there we go. Now we're at the message. Do you remember as a kid, when you were out in public, you were at a park or you were downtown uh, on a city sidewalk or at the beach or the airport, that you noticed all these fascinating things on the ground? Children are built lower to the ground, so they just notice all that stuff. I spent the first seven years of my life in Japan as a missionary kid, and I remember walking down the narrow streets in the city where we lived or walking down the tracks of the train station, station, and I'd pick up all kinds of those little things, little rocks, interesting sticks, colorful candy wrappers, discarded boxes, cigarette butts, little trinkets, and treasures. And into my pocket they would go, collected for later examination. And once home, I'd pull them all out and I'd spread them on the floor and have a closer look. My parents would observe and they would ask, where did you get all that stuff? And when I told them, their reaction was as predictable as the sunrise. Don't touch that. You don't know where it's been. Did your parents ever tell you that? Okay. Do you as parents ever say that to your kids? Don't touch that. You don't know where it's been. Okay. Just making sure. Well, there were some good upstanding church people in Corinth, Christians in the first century church that were making a similar statement to that, only it was modified to reflect an issue that they dealt with all the time. They dealt with this all the time. It was uppermost in their mind. Their statement was, don't eat that. You don't know where it's been. Don't eat that. You don't know where it's been. Well, today we're going to look at a situation we do not face today, but was uppermost in the minds of the first church in Corinth. And in reality, we face many similarities and parallels that are very appropriate. Some of you are saying, where is he going with this? That's okay. Today, it's don't eat that, you don't know where it's been. We're moving on in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. We're in a series on 1 Corinthians. By the way, we are going to uh, return to chapter 7 yeah, several weeks down the road, I wanted to take more time to work on, on a message on uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but that's going to that's gonna be something down the road. We'll get back to that. But we're going to 1 Corinthians 8, the 8th chapter today. And uh, it's on page 928 if you want to read it in the uh, Bible in the rack in front of you. And uh, we're going to look at this passage today. A passage is, that seems really confusing. I hope by the time we finish today, it'll make perfect sense. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but, knowledge build, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. 
Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, for we are no worse if we do eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone in the weak, with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Don't eat that. You don't know where it's been, was the solution to some in the church at Corinth for a problem they encountered literally on a daily basis, something we also encounter on a daily basis. And this was an issue of lifestyle. It was an issue of lifestyle. It was a what we call a gray area. Our lifestyle is defined as actions we take, things that we do based on our values and our view of right and our view of wrong. Some actions we know are right, some actions we know are wrong. But what about those areas in the ozone, the, the gray areas? We have black, white, and gray. Black is actions that are always wrong for everybody. And we're pretty clear on that. White, these are actions that are always right for all people. But then you have the gray areas, actions that seem right to some but wrong for others. So in the area of lifestyle, things that we do based on our values, there's black and white and gray, and there are a lot of different shades of gray. How do we handle those issues in the body of Christ? In our, in our American culture today, where everyone chooses what's right and wrong, isn't everything gray? Isn't everything gray? Well, I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians who believe in divine revelation, believe that the Bible is God's word, revealing truth that reveals right and wrong and morality. And we as, as believers, if, if we follow Christ, base our lifestyle on the Bible. It is our standard of faith and practice. You can look at our, our value system and value statement, doctrinal statements. It's our basis of faith and practice, what we do, what we believe and what we do. So our lifestyles as Christians are or ought to be based on the values and truth found in the Bible. But what about actions the Bible does not address? Ah, there's the rub, there's the issue. And one of the issues in the Corinthian church was eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now before you write off this as irrelevant because we don't have that issue today, let's, let's look at some background or history of, so that we get the perspective of what was, what was happening here. The background starts with this. The Corinthians were very religious or superstitious people. They worshiped many gods. Idolatry and pagan sacrifices permeated every part of their society, both the Greeks and the Romans. And food was very, a very important part of their religion and their practice of faith. Witness the importance of food to the practice of our church life or our faith. You know, we have barbecues and coffee and donuts and potlucks and all those other picnics. Food is a very important part of, of life, and it was in their religious life as it is in our church life. Food and meals were a part of the Corinthians' ritual and worship, and it included two different kinds of sacrifices, two different kinds of sacrifices. The first one is a private sacrifice, okay? This was something held by a small group of individuals. They're, they would take an animal and they'd slaughter it and divide it into three parts. A token of the animal was burnt on an altar to the god, 
then the priests got their cut or their share, and then the worshiper received the rest of the meat and could give a dinner party, a banquet, a feast, or, or use it celebrating a wedding. That's how, they, that's how they rolled back then. The private sacrifice was not an everyday occurrence, but it was used for significant days and family celebrations. The second type of sacrifice was the public sacrifice. Public sacrifice was where an animal was slaughtered and some was burned on the altar, some was given to the priest or the local magistrates, which would be the mayor, the city council, county council members, school board members, or whatever. It would be spread out to those. And whatever was left over was sold to the local restaurant. Okay, Texas Roadhouse Grill or Famous Dave's or Johnny's Italian Steakhouse. Or it was sold to the local grocery store. Festival Foods, Woodman's, Sam's Club or whatever. It was a, the local meat market. Okay, so you had the private sacrifice and the public sacrifice. But meat eaten in any place or fashion had some connection to sacrifice. It, there was always some kind of sacrifice done for it. Now, it got more complicated than that. These Corinthians were very superstitious. They, they believed in demons and devils. They believed the air was full of demons. They're always trying to find a way into a person to injure his body or unhinge his mind. And one way they believed demons gained entry was through food. So the demon settles on that T-bone steak. The guy eats the steak and zap, demon possession. That's what they believed. To avoid this, they would dedicate the meat to one of their gods, before they slaughtered it. Of course, the easiest thing back then was they just become a vegetarian. But one could hardly find any meat that had not been connected some way to pagan gods. They did not have separation of church and state or church and stake. Is everybody wait? Okay, that was bad, I know. You couldn't go into the local grocery store and read USDA labels, secular cow and sacred cow, okay? It just didn't exist. So this is the challenge of living a Christian life in this pagan culture. You thought Eau Claire was complicated. So here comes Fred, a brand new believer down the aisle at a festival with a shopping cart. He stops at the meat counter and reads from the grocery list that his wife gave him. It says one pound ground beef, six pounds roast beef, three pounds of sirloin tip. But then he remembers these steers were probably sacrificed to idols. Now he's a, he's a Christian, so he wants no part of it. So he turns off to head off to the produce section, and who do you suppose shows up at the meat counter? George. George, who, who leads his connect group and is also a board member. So what does Fred do now? What does Fred do now? Fred runs into another problem. His cousin Demetrius is getting married and invited Fred. Part of the marriage celebration is a big party at the local pagan temple, including the sacrifice and dedication of meat to the God, followed by a feast. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, this was being a participant with demons. So what does Fred do? I mean, this was complicated stuff. These are big issues that they were facing in the church at Corinth. So out of this problem, this situation, a problem was created. Let's look at what the problem was that was created. Evidently, there were two primary group classifications in the Corinthian church. Two. All the people knew and agreed on the black and white. It was a sin to worship idols. There was no argument. They were not going to get into worshiping idols. But what about this gray area of eating meat that had been offered to idols? Well, the first group were the mature believers. 
mature believers. The mature, the group of mature believers had lots of knowledge. They'd studied the word of God. They had been the first converts to the Christian faith. These were the charter church members. It had been a long time since they had experienced 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. They, they remembered their, their heathen background in, in the back, you know, just in the past. They were living, that was way, way away. They were mature believers. It was distant memory. To this group of mature believers, all this sacrificial idolatry was a bunch of nonsense. Idols were only pieces of wood or rock or metal. And Paul agrees in verse 4. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. Okay? That's a knowledge. These believers did not view the gods to which people sacrificed animals as having any reality. They had lots of spiritual knowledge, and they were quite proud of it. They were quite proud of it. They looked condescendingly on the second group. They looked down on the other group, which were the new believers. New believers. These were new Christians, Fred, of course, being part of this group. And they knew the facts on three levels. Uh, there was the theoretical level. There was the intellectual level. And at, at the theoretical and intellectual level, they knew that idols were really nothing. But, but his conversion was too recent. It was too close. It had just happened. And he wrestled with this whole thing on the emotional level, the emotional level. In other words, his former associations with his past pagan life were still a part of his consciousness. So what does this have to do with us today? In the 1970s, Christian rock music began to find its way into Christian churches. The Christian music artists took a contemporary form of art and communication and put Christian lyrics to it. Some of you remember when this all started to happen. And of course, Luther and Wesley did the same thing in their day. Some thought rock music was more communication than art, but that's, that's a different discussion. I loved it. I loved it. It seems as if we've been singing ancient hymns for 235 years, and I said, man, it's great. We have some music I, I relate to. So I bought all the Christian rock I could find and afford records and tapes. Now, I know some of you have never seen a record or tape, but that's what we had then. Now it's CDs, now it's actually MP3s. It's, yeah, whatever. Totally different. A young college student, Denny, was converted to faith in Jesus Christ, and a friend of his brought him to our church uh, to be part of our youth ministry. I was the youth pastor at the church at the time. So I was trying to integrate Danny and, and give him some good Christian music alternative, some good Christian rock music that he could identify with. Well, Danny listened to part of only one song and he quickly turned it off. He said, I can't listen to that. I said, what? I was stunned. I said, why? Why? Well, he told me he had come out of a very wild party lifestyle with alcohol, drugs, and orgies. His experience was of wild parties, tripping on drugs, and he, when he heard the style of music, rock music, he associated it immediately with his pagan lifestyle. The association with that was too strong and too recent. Now, Denny could deal with the music on the theoretical level. The theoretical level says, that it's just a musical style, it's a genre. On the intellectual level, he could deal with that because music is physics and mathematical relationships. In other words, music is amoral. There's nothing moral or immoral about music. What creates morality for music is its lyrical content. 
But musical style is different types of relationships, etc. But what he had to deal with was the associational factors, the associational factors. His past was too close, it was too recent. So when he heard that style of music, he immediately associated it with this horrible lifestyle that he had come out of. Associational factors. We cannot lightly disregard associational factors. We have to ask when we hear something or we're dealing with a gray area of lifestyle, which way does it move me? Does it move me closer to God? Or does it move me further away from God? And it's gonna be different for everybody because one person may associate nothing but good with it, some people nothing but evil. I remember in, when, when I started playing in jazz band in high school, and my parents said, oh, I don't know about that music, it was jazz, you know. Well, we were playing 40s jazz, and we were playing, you know, the different jazz greats and stuff. They associated that with the, the immoral lifestyle uh, in, in the bars and the clubs that they had observed and come out of, said their friends had come out of. And so when they heard that music, they associated it immediately with something negative. I associated it with music history and understanding, you know, jazz. I mean, it was totally different. For me. I had no negative association. But the question is, which way does it move you to away from God or closer to God? If I feel guilty, it must mean I am guilty. That's, that's the issue on the theoretical level. Associational factors. Now, let's get back to 1 Corinthians. For the Corinthians, eating meat that had been offered to idols violated the new believer's conscience. Therefore, Paul gives it a label. He calls it something called, he gives it a, calls it a stumbling block. So he said, so eating meat, if they see me eat meat offered to idols, it's too close. They have these negative associations. Therefore, it is a stumbling block to them. It's an obstacle to their faith. So, so what's, the, what's, the, what's the Corinthian solution? The Corinthian says, ah, what's our solution? It's knowledge, knowledge. Give these people knowledge. Give them teaching so they'll snap out of it. The mature believers said, we have knowledge, therefore we're free. And Paul says, no. Paul, who more than any other writer taught Christians to celebrate their freedom in Christ, says no. He draws a contrast between two things, knowledge and love. He says, says in verse one, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. He says knowledge puffs up and makes arrogance, produces pride. Love Contrasted with that builds up, it edifies, it brings knowledge of God, demonstrates a too, true knowledge of God. Does Paul say knowledge is bad? No, no. But true knowledge never does anyone harm. Let me say that again. True knowledge never does anyone harm. True knowledge is demonstrated in love, in love. I have this quote from Gordon Fee in your notes, should be up on the screen. Knowledge that harms is not complete knowledge, but partial knowledge. Knowledge that harms is not complete knowledge, but partial knowledge. It means we know some things, but we don't have the whole picture. In 1988, I performed a wedding. And the reception that followed was held at a beautiful country club in town. 
The reception was well underway when Judy and I arrived, and in this large lobby, waiters were circulating with trays full of champagne. And as was typical at wedding receptions, they also had an open bar. Several of our church members, all mature believers, some of my leaders, were having champagne. These people had freedom by knowledge and by self-control. They didn't have a problem with alcohol. They would tell you things like Jesus turned water into wine and Jesus drank wine. They'll say the Bible warns the dangers of alcohol and the absolute prohibition against drunkenness. But they would say if anyone truly knows the Bible, if you have knowledge, then you know that alcohol is not a black and white issue. And these church people had no personal problem with having a glass of alcohol. It was true. They had freedom, but not complete knowledge. They didn't have complete knowledge. They had incomplete knowledge. They had knowledge for themselves only. What their incomplete knowledge did not include was the fact that there were four people, four people, also part of our church community and family, four individuals there at that wedding reception that were recovering alcoholics, including a 15-year-old boy who had just gotten out of rehab that very week. Partial knowledge, complete knowledge. Knowledge dictated one action. Total knowledge dictates a whole different action. Freedom dictates one action, but love dictates an entirely different action. Paul calls this action a stumbling block, a stumbling block. Let's look at stumbling blocks. Alcohol is just one potential stumbling block. Other examples could be a credit, using a credit card in front of a shopaholic, eating sweets in front of a diabetic, inviting someone to a questionable movie who has an addiction to pornography. Our actions always, our actions in relationship will always, always help or hurt. They're very rarely neutral. We can say it's not my problem, or we can say it is my problem. It is my problem. Because we're part of the same family, the same body, the same team. I will express my love. I love you more than I love exercising my freedoms. Gordon Fee said this. It's also in your notes. Freedom moves in the direction of individualized existence, while love moves in the direction of community and care for others. Let me say that again. Freedom moves in the direction of individualized existence while love moves in the direction of community and care for others. To some, freedom had become the highest good since it led to the exaltation of individual. For Paul, the opposite prevails. Love means a free giving up of one's rights for the sake of others and life together in community. And that's the aim of salvation. Gordon Fee says, it sounds downright un-American, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Verse 8 says, food does not bring us near to God, and we're no worse if we do not eat, nor better if we do. In other words, we don't become right before God by exercising or not exercising our freedoms. But he says, be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Exercising love. 
Mark 9.42 says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now, those are strong words. And, of course, he's using exaggeration here. Following is the passage that, it, that encourages cutting off your hands or feet or plucking out your eye. But he's saying, what is he saying? He, Jesus is saying stumbling block is a serious issue. Gordon Fee writes, the issue is not that of offending someone in the church. It is causing another to emulate, not just observing, but involving. This is an issue of influencing an alcoholic unknowingly to take another drink because he or she saw you. But more so if you encouraged him or her by offering them a drink, trying to involve them. In churches where we, we've served in leadership, since we do not know everyone's past, We've not allowed alcohol at any church official function, large group, small group, wedding reception, or dinner. And we, next Sunday, we'll be talking more about some practical implications and applications of these principles. It can be influencing by observation or influencing by involvement. And if you are in leadership, you know that your behavior is much more influential. So we all need to be very careful with what we do and say in our freedoms. So the Corinthian solution was knowledge. What was Paul's solution? Very simply, one word, love, love, love. Love means I care more about that person than my freedoms. Let's look at some principles. Very quickly, some principles. Letter A, knowledge brings freedom, also arrogance. Knowledge brings freedom, also arrogance. Knowledge should lead to love, but sometimes it makes us proud. I've seen a lot of people proud of their freedoms and, and they flaunt it. And there are people that do that. Secondly, letter B, freedom can be used for good or bad. It can be selfishly or unselfishly. Letter C, loving my brother or sister is more important than exercising my freedoms. Loving my brother or sister is more important than love, exercising my freedoms. Letter D, to sin against my brother is to sin against Christ. To sin against my brother is to sin against Christ. Verse 12, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Letter E, verse 11 says that our actions can have eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Verse 11 says, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Destroyed refers to eternal, eternal loss. Let's look at some guidelines very quickly. Number six. Letter A, be aware. Be aware. We must be aware of the issues people are dealing with. And when we've been a Christian for years, sometimes we lose touch with our culture and unaware of the potential that, that, that there is for stumbling blocks. We must be aware. Stay informed. Know what's going on. Secondly, be sensitive. Get to know the people in our church family. Listen and learn. What issues are people dealing with? What issues are people dealing with? If a husband is so busy he's never at home to spend time with his family, don't try to involve him in a sports team or in additional evening commitments. Help him be a good father. If a person is an alcoholic, never offer wine or beer to them in your home or with dinner. Be very careful. Verse 13 says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Romans 14, 20 to 21 says this, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, 
but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Be sensitive, be sensitive. Letter C, be intelligent, be intelligent. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, very quickly um, through 30, says everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions for conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some believer invites you to a meal, you go eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice and do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, the other man's conscience, I mean not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Be intelligent. Know why, we we need to know why we do certain things, know why we don't do certain things. It's, It's critical that we just, we know. Think things through. Letter D, don't be paranoid. Don't be paranoid. Jesus does intend for us to be free and live in freedom. No question about it. We can live our lives looking over our shoulder, paranoid we might do something that could possibly offend someone. That's bondage, that's not freedom. So don't live in bondage, don't be paranoid. Balance is a key word here. Letter E, be loving. Much of, much of our behavior has to do with our attitude, our motive, and our heart. Knowledge is not the best basis of our actions, love is the best basis of our action. Love always builds people up, and love covers a multitude of sins. And finally, glorify God in all my actions. Glorify God in all my actions. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't eat that. You don't know where it's been. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. I have... Just 10 copies, if we need more copies of, of this message in written form at the back. If you want, if you want one, pick it up. One of the, one of the dangers of, uh, of some of these messages is, is misunderstanding. And so uh, whether you go online to listen to this or if you're listening to this online, if, you wanna, if we run out of copies and you would like to have one, just email uh, email office at ecwesleyan.net. We'll get a copy out to you. I, I just value... Uh, having this kind of information clear, especially when it comes to lifestyle issues. And next Sunday, um, I'm going to take the, the second part of this message, very important, uh, because it's a balance. These, are, these, these belong together. Uh, we'll be talking about biblical absolutes, community standards, and personal convictions, all as it relates to lifestyle. So if you uh, are going to be gone next Sunday, please go online or get a copy of the message in written form after next Sunday. Uh, you can do that as, as well. So uh, just want to share. Now you know all there is to know about 1 Corinthians 8. I hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank